0: This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With free event and show insurance for members and clubs, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall.
1: And I'm Jim Martin. Trevor and I hope you've been enjoying our little show, which explores the many facets of this richly complex and fascinating hobby.
0: If you're new to our show, welcome aboard. We hope you'll become a regular listener. The Model Railway Show is the little show with big ideas.
1: And in the next 20 minutes or so, we'll have two more fascinating guests to stir the gray matter. Later on, I'll be speaking with the multi-talented Boone Morrison, who has some advice on how to make a better first impression with our layouts. But the first impression this time around is Trevor's, as he speaks of the man who's. His rail fanning interests led him to publish his own magazine on New England railroading, and whose preference for mud and melting snow is placed him among the hobby's finest scenery artists.
0: My guest on this episode of the Model Railway Show is a modeler we'd all love to have in our round robin layout group. For starters, Mike Confalone is a diehard rail fan. Anybody who needs proof just needs to look at the full color magazine he launched in 2000. Railroad Explorer comes out three times per year, and it showcases the trains of northeastern North America. I have every issue, and three times per year I am rewarded for my subscription with an inspiring visit to New England, the Northeast, and the Canadian provinces from Ontario and Quebec through to Atlantic Canada. As Mike wrote in his very first editorial, Railroad Explorer was created to share with you the excitement, drama, and spirit of adventure of railfanning, past and present, in this very special corner of the world. It's a mission that the magazine accomplishes with each and every issue. But Mike is also an accomplished modeler, his H.O. scale Allagash Railway is set in the late 1970s and presents the same excitement, drama, and spirit of adventure as his magazine, just in 187th the size. I've seen many layouts in person and in print, and I have to admit that the Allagash is the closest I've encountered to a true rail fanning experience. You can experience it as well, as Mike has posted several videos of his layout on YouTube. We'll have a link on our website, so be sure to check out his excellent Allagash Railway in action. Mike, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thanks for having me Trevor. Now let's start with your rail fanning interest. What drew you trackside? Well,
2: my earliest memories of being trackside were with my grandmother. I was probably 4 or 5 years old on Long Island growing up and she used to bring me down to the end of her driveway where you, we had a view of the Long Island Railroad Station and we used to see trains going by. That's the earliest memory of being trackside. And then, I, you know, as I got a little bit older on my bicycle, getting around locally on Long Island and developing an interest in the Long Island Railroad and commuter trains uh, around my house, really, you know, I used to hear them all the time and, and the horns would bring me trackside and I'd eventually learn when the trains were coming. And those are the earliest experiences I, I have and basically from probably age 8 or 9 up through my early teen years. Those were the formative years and in, uh, becoming interested in what was going on around me with regard to the, the railroad scene. I didn't leave Long Island very much. I was fortunate that my good friend Joe Posick, his family had relatives in New Hampshire and in the early 80s they used to make annual summer vacation trips to New Hampshire so I was able to go along with them and get a little bit of a flavor for what was outside of my backyard and some early exposure to the main Central in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and the Canadian Pacific and in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, things like that really lit the fire big time. Uh, and that started my interest and passion in New England railroading. And from there, uh, just continued to grow.
0: Now, you mentioned that you first went trackside with your grandmother when you were four years old. So I, I'm guessing that the rail fanning came before the model railway enthusiasm. But when did you get involved with the little trains?
2: Well, good friends of mine that on Long Island as a kid growing up had your typical four by eight sheet of plywood with. HL-scale trains on them. And I can't honestly say what came first, the chicken or the egg. You know, I think they kind of happened simultaneously. And I got my first train set when I was 11, and it just blew up from there. I think the key thing that really elevated it or took it to the next level was joining a club. There was a hobby shop in Smithtown, New York, where I grew up, called Three Guys Hobbies, which is still in business today. And my mom used to bring me down to the hobby shop all the time, and they told me about this club, and I said, well, let's go down and visit. It. I went down and visited in the uh, basement of a church building and I just was blown away. i had never seen a big model railroad. The biggest thing I'd ever seen was a 4x8 sheet of plywood. So the idea that a, a railroad would meander around an entire basement was just incredible. And that was the key event. And from there it just blossomed into, you know, what it is today. And you know, with modeling it comes and goes over the years. Uh, you know, my college years I did some modeling, but I did more railfanning and railfanning was the primary thing I did. I never the left model railroading. I was always there in the background, regardless of what was going on in my life. And, you know, when we built our first house in the early 90s here in New Hampshire, I built the layout. My dad helped me do it. And that was taken down. We moved into the house we're in now in the same town in Gothstown, New Hampshire. And about six years ago, I began the process of building what is now the Allegash Railway.
0: When I look at the videos of your layout, I have a hard time believing that you haven't simply painted up some real locomotives in your Allegash Railway scheme and then snuck them onto the rails when the late lamented Bangor and Aroostook wasn't using them. You could model lots of wonderful subjects that you profile three times a year in Railroad Explorer. Why did you go with a freelance line?
2: I think the biggest... Driver with that is creativity. I have a, a real creative energy, and I've always been a, a bit of a dreamer, I guess, in, in many regards. So the idea of having my own railroad, so to speak, really was interesting to me. And this was not the first one. I've, you know, I've been doing this since I was a young teen. I've had all kinds of different freelance railroads over the year, whether they were in my head or on a 4 x 8 of plywood or whatever. You know, and I've always been growing up reading model railroad and craftsman, and all, you know, and reading about the Yale Allegheny Midland, Tony Custer's layout, and, of course, Alan McClellan's Virginia and Ohio, and and others as well, they always struck me as really cool. So there's a difference between creating and replicating. If you're a strict prototype modeler and you say, I'm going to model the Bangor and Roostick for instance, as you mentioned, in circa 1977, well, that's what I call replicating. You have to replicate what was actually there. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do, no matter how good a modeler you are. You can give it your best effort, but you're never going to be able to replicate any scene because of the nature of the beast with modeling. You're compressing everything. So having said that, that the freelance side of things, you know, the proto-freelance, really, because my railroad is based on prototype practices and takes a lot of the influences, the area railroads influenced what the Allagash looks like. But I don't have to replicate actual scenes. You know, I've got a high standard for how I want things to look. And if I were to attempt to replicate specific scenes, which I have done before, I find that that my satisfaction level is just never quite right. I can never get it good enough. So with the proto-freelance angle, you're able to take liberties, if you will, and be creative and just do things that make the railroad look real, but you can't say, well, that town didn't really look like that because it didn't actually exist, or perhaps it was influenced by other factors. And the other side of the coin is the creativity uh, of, cre- you know, creating your own railroad and just your own paint schemes, your own locomotives, your own operating scheme. You know, you're the boss and it enables you to kind of go down that road of, of exploration. So I guess that's the primary. Those are the reasons why I chose to go with a freelance or a proto-freelance option versus a strict prototype.
0: Well, despite going that proto-freelance route and making up the towns as you have, your layout is obviously influenced by your rail fanning experiences. What have you learned while rail fanning that's influenced your design. Is it the importance of including non-rail elements in the scene? Or First of
2: all, the Allegheny Railway, okay, it is, the railroad exists on the map. These are real places. The towns are all real. And some of those places we've visited and have taken specific buildings and put them on the map. In other words, modeled them as if a railroad did run through that town. In terms of the rail fanning experience, you know, what I've taken from being trackside, you know, in this neck of the woods, in New England specifically, is, is an awful, awful Lot of open space. And when I say that, I don't mean farmland per se. I'm talking about Miles of nothing, woods, forest, farms, just no population. You know, a lot of these railroads, especially in Maine, ran through some very, very unpopulated areas. And so in order to make it realistic or to make it plausible or to have the right feel, you have to include those things on the model railroad. If you don't, if you've got town after town after town, siding after siding and industries everywhere, It's just not going to have that feel, unless you're modeling, you know, an urban kind of situation, and that's perfectly appropriate. But for what I'm doing, you know, open space is hugely important, and and I tried to do that. Despite the compression and all that, there are ways to do it so that it appears that the the railroad is going somewhere and, you know, going through these areas of very little uh, population.
0: Now, you must refer to railfanning photos either your own or the ones that you quite conveniently have put into Railroad Explorer magazine. When you're composing your layout scenes, how does that stock of knowledge influence the arrangement of structures, scenery, track, roads, things like that?
2: Um, I, I would say that the books that have been published over the years, from some of the folks that have, were trackside in the 70s, well, those are the, the primary source of inspiration for me. I, I wasn't there at the time. I was only 10 years old. I didn't live up here. I didn't have access to it. So essentially, I'm looking through a, uh, a window in time to see what things look like, whether it's a black and white photo with an article somewhere or a color photos and some of the Uh, the Morning Sun books. It's a good thing that this stuff has come out and people are able to enjoy it. So I would say there are particular photos that have been published over the years that have made big-time impact on me. and I've taken from them in order to model different scenes on on the layout. And if you do that and you have a good set of skills and you're able to take what you see on a a printed page and transfer it to the three-dimensional world, you know, you're going to have some success. It's a challenge, no doubt about it. And I enjoy the challenge, but that's the primary influence for me, the primary source of information. It's not photos I've taken or trackside experiences that I've had. It's mostly stuff that's been done because things have changed so drastically over the last 30 or 40 years.
0: Rail fanning has changed too. We've gone from that sort of three-quarter wedge shot to a, a sensibility behind the camera that puts the train firmly in the scene, and sometimes the train is a very small part of the scene. Has that translated to the layout at all? Do you, When you're building a scene on your layout do you look at it as how is this going to photograph
2: Yeah, actually I do. I generally speaking uh, approach everything from a rail fan's perspective. In other words, specifically with regard to photography, when I shoot the railroad, I don't take these ultra close up photos where you're actually like an HO scale figure in the scene. I try to take photos that look like a rail fan would have taken. So it might be standing up on a hillside or standing trackside, not so close in, not so far away, finding that sweet spot of where it looks like a real train, a real scene, and paying attention to things like that. And when I design a scene, I do consider that because I really enjoy photographing, especially with digital photography now. It's just, it's terrific, you know. You don't have to worry about wasting film or exposure. You know, all those factors that have really been difficult in getting good model photography over the years are now gone with digital. It's very easy. But you still have to be able to compose a good photo and have a good eye for it and create a scene that looks
0: real. You must have had to do things like leave space for foreground scenery just so that when you do set up your camera, you're not looking at fascia.
2: And that's a problem. I just did this scene recently, uh, this place called Knox Farm, where it's a peninsula turn back loop. And, you know, looking at the scene now, it's very difficult to photograph because there's not a lot of foreground scenery at the apex of the curve there where a train comes wrapping around this broad sweeping curve. And you've got this farm on the hillside and photo backdrop, the whole deal. And I'm actually contemplating uh, taking the fascia down and moving the scenery out about four to six inches. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's the difference between being able to photograph that scene successfully and not. And, uh, you know, I may have to give up a little bit of aisle space there, but it's one of these things that's going to drive me crazy. And every time I go down and look at it, I say, man, this is just, I need more, you know, I need to do something here and make this change. And those kinds of things happen when you make compromises. You know, you need aisle space, you need this, you need that. It's a matter of compromise. But that particular scene is one of those signature scenes, I guess. There's a few scenes on the layout you like to call signature scenes. You'd like to photograph things there and do video and all that. And right now, it's it's difficult to get proper composition in there.
0: Speaking of videos, once our listeners see your videos on YouTube, I know they're going to want to see more of the Allagash Railway. What projects are you going to be tackling next on the layout?
2: First of all, the layout will be featured in Model Railroad Planning 2012, which is the end of this year. And essentially what you see, what's been done now up to this point, is what will be featured in that story. Between now and then, typically during the cold months, during the winter, is when I do the big scenery projects downstairs. Right now is operation season, and now it's time to tweak some locomotives, make sure all the sound-equipped stuff is working properly, and just work on all the, the myriad tasks that are required to, to have a successful operating session. So I would just say that there'll be additional scenery on the horizon soon, and my goal is to have the railroad done, completely done, in another three to five years.
0: Excellent, and I really look forward to watching your progress on that. Mike, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. It's been a treat. Thanks so much, Trevor. Mike Confalone is publisher of Railroad Explorer magazine, as well as several excellent books on railroading in New England and the Northeast. He joined us from his home in New Hampshire.
1: At Mike's work, I can feel my boots sticking in the mud. The scenery presentation is really quite amazing. So, folks, be sure to check the links on our website for videos of Mike's smooth running layout.
0: Absolutely. As I said in the introduction, I think it's one of the best rail fanning layouts I've ever seen. I've only ever seen it in the pictures. I hope to get down to New Hampshire and see it sometime in person, but it just really feels like your trackside.
1: Okay, if you go, I'm riding shotgun. And congratulations, I guess, on Extra 2011. It's wrapped up. And from what I've heard, it was. uh, a roaring success.
0: It certainly sounds like it, and of course, the S-Scale convention was part of that as well, and I noticed a lot of great coverage on the Extra 2011 West Facebook page. They did a really good job of keeping the people who couldn't go to the convention, including both of us, informed about what was going on. Indeed.
1: And now, a on how to listen to our show, Trevor.
0: Well, the best way to listen to our show is to subscribe via iTunes. You can find a link on our site, themodelrailwayshow.com, that will take you right to iTunes and allow you to subscribe. The other thing we should mention is that we really encourage listeners, if you like what you hear, why not burn it on a CD and give it to your friends? The more listeners, the merrier.
1: You bet. If you like the show, pass it on. If you don't, uh, write your complaint on the $20 bill and send it to us,
0: right? Exactly.
1: And a reminder also that we have a Facebook page of our own, and you can find your way to it via our website.
0: Now, you may notice that Jim's voice sounds a little bit like he's on a telephone. That's because he is. He's calling in from the Lakeside Retreat. But now comes proof that certain portions of the show have been pre-recorded, as Jim voice magically reverts to studio quality and since the topic is about the quality of presentation neither jim nor his guest would want it any other way first impressions are important so what kind of impressions do our model
3: railroads make on the outsiders who look in on us When our neighbors are invited into our basements because they've heard we have a train set, or when a curious potential recruit to the hobby attends a train show to look at the display layouts, what does he or she see? Something worthy of a museum exhibit, or something that makes us look developmentally arrested? How do we make our layouts, and through them, the hobby, look worthwhile to others and deserving of their time and interest? We've invited Boone Morrison onto the show for his thoughts. Like so many in the hobby, Boone is a man of multiple talents. He's an architect who, among other things, things has undertaken the forensic restoration of historic buildings destroyed by earthquakes he's a fine art and commercial photographer who studied with Ansel Adams he's an award-winning documentary filmmaker a university lecturer and, of course, a model railroader. Boone's also a prolific author. Over the years, he's written 81 articles for the Narrow Gauge and Shortline Gazette and has managed to pop a few into Model Railroader and Railroad Model Craftsman as well. We're coming up on a year since Boone's final article in the Gazette. In it, he announced he's taking a time out from writing so he can get some work done on his ON3 North Pacific Coast Railroad and its subsidiary, the Buckhorn Logging Company. Boone Morrison's on the line with us now from his home in the town of Volcano Hawaii. Hi. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Boone. Hi
4: there, Jim. Great to talk to
3: you. Got to ask, any trouble getting fire insurance in a town named Volcano?
4: Oddly enough, no. Fortunately, we're uphill from where the eruptions
3: are. Oh, good stuff. Lava doesn't flow uphill, I guess, to uh, paraphrase not, an old plumbing. Uh, not, not to my awareness. Okay. Well, thanks for those past articles. Uh, your, your rest, I think, from writing is well-deserved, and your future return is anticipated. Now, I'm sure that you've walked into layout rooms where the effect the builder was trying to achieve was harmed by the environment. Environment in which it was displayed. You know, the usual culprits, inadequate lighting, busy looking fabrics, perhaps a children's train motif on the curtains, that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on how a model railroad should be presented?
4: Well, I think it begins, Jim, with what the modeler's intent is. I think in model reloading, like in a lot of other things, there's a tremendous range of interests and focus that we bring. Some fellows are bench modelers who do tremendous work and produce gorgeous little dioramas, and that's satisfactory. On the other end of the scale, we have the operators who basically create a kinetic board game with complex track work and car orders and train orders and all the things that go along with that. And I think that we cannot always judge by the same ruler. But I think if we're looking at an effort that would bring perhaps a lot of that together into one situation, and I speak specifically of a layout like the one in Seattle that Paul Scholes has done in SN3, I think it achieves the goal probably as successfully as any I've ever seen, in that every square foot of that layout is a gorgeous piece of model making. At the same time, it is a great operator's layout, and it is run twice monthly, just like a real railroad very successfully. So I think we have to take into account the matter of intent. But I think the most important thing is to realize, at least from my point of view, that we're trying to create a stage play here. We're trying to get the viewer to suspend their disbelief and forget for a moment they're looking at miniature trains and buildings and landscaping. We want them to buy into our little scenario. And my feeling is that in order to do that, we want to strip away as much distraction as possible and frankly deny them the chance to be distracted by the things around them. Don't give them anything to distract them. Make it as simple as possible with the feature being very strongly placed upon the modeling and the setting.
3: Well, that's what the- museum builders do, isn't it? What you've just described. You walk into a darkened room.
4: Absolutely. And my introduction to model making was at about eight or nine years of age at the Maritime Museum in San Francisco. And in a corner, there was a beautifully done diorama of the typical little California dog hole shipyard with a ship on the ways being built and lumber being sawn and lovely landscaping and so on. I took one look at that and that was it. I was sold. That's what I wanted to do. And it was one of those museum settings.
3: It sounds like you've described a strategy for modelers. Go to a museum, a quality museum, and get some inspiration and ideas from that and take them back to the basement, right?
4: You know, that's a really good beginning, Jim. I think the fellows in museum display work have spent long careers in many cases honing their techniques for this. And I think the other one is to think of it in terms of a theatrical presentation. We go into a theater and we know it's a stage and actors and a set, but if the thing is well presented, very soon we lose sight of all of that and just focus upon the action on the state.
3: You've done clinics about this, so I know you could go on for hours, but I'm going to just hit you with some <laughs> some topics. Can you give us some 25-word answers, maybe? Let's start with lighting. You've You've had articles in the Gazette about how to light a layout.
4: Well, I think it starts out by comparing the lighting on your layout to the lighting on your workbench. Most everybody has a well-illuminated workbench. So why should we not present the models in the same level of light and the same quality of light as we had available when we built them? Now, the quality of light is rather a wide range. What I have settled on, and a number of modelers have, is using fluorescent lighting as the overall light. And there's a product called a GE Chroma 50, and that is the single and only fluorescent light that is true daylight balanced what daylight balance does is it gives all of the colors real life and intensity. The problem that you run into is accent light because fluorescents do not give shadows. I'm struggling with that, and a lot of guys are too. One of the standard answers has been halogen floods of various kinds. The problem is their light, by comparison to daylight, is rather yellow. What I'm looking at and hoping for is that the development of these new cluster LED lamps are going to begin to bring us something that we can really make use of. I'm watching that real close.
3: You know, whatever you employ, something better is going to come along. We
4: always hope. (laughs) (laughs) That's an
3: axiom, isn't it? Backdrops, your thoughts on those?
4: Well, I think there's two ways to go. Either none, a plain blue wall that is shaded lighter at the bottom, darker at the top as we see in the natural world or some form of painting or a backdrop photograph glued on the wall. I think that I have rarely seen a successful printed backdrop. The integration of the backdrop with the foreground is a tough one at best. If you're going to paint on a wall, for goodness sake, either get to the point where you can paint reasonably well or find somebody to do it for you, because there's nothing worse than a bad
3: backdrop painting. A a Grandma Moses backdrop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We try to avoid those.
4: Of course, that will produce a high level of anxiety and agony in the person who's painting it. I speak from personal experience.
3: (laughs) Fascia (laughs) colors, what about them? Muted?
4: Oh, yes. Here's the intent in my layout room. The carpet is dark. The draperies underneath the layout benchwork are dark the fascia and the light valence above are dark and basically you're looking at an illuminated slit now remember my layout is around the wall on shelves ranging from 26 to 34 inches the corners of course get deeper and it is intended to be seen from that point of view the idea there is there's no distractions there's no illumination there's nothing to see other than this slit and within that slit is the miniature reality that you're attempting to present
3: now, as important as all of this is, Boone, on a home layout, it has to be even more so for traveling display layouts. But they face their own challenges in some of these gymnasiums and the like. But do you think most modular groups are too complacent about the impression they make on the visiting public and in tackling the problems and in, in presenting that layout within these environments?
4: Well, one of the problems there is simply the physical involvement of how to support a lighting valence, how to give a backdrop when you're working with modular segments. And it makes it difficult. It requires that there be a very strong overall design theme and oversight on the part of somebody or some group within the modular gang. It can be done. I've seen some nice ones. But I've seen a far greater number that are less than successful. And once again, it goes back to what are you doing? Are you going to run trains in a circle and let everybody see them? Or are you going to try to create a miniature reality? In the case of the latter, you have a little bit more difficulty, but it can be done. I've seen it.
3: Do you think these groups should be thinking beyond the conventional model train mindset to to a display more in keeping with a professional trade show exhibit? How much more would that do for credibility?
4: Oh, a great deal. A great deal. You know, I think the biggest problem, Jim, it can be simply stated that people don't think about this. They don't. They complete a lovely model on the bench, they install it on the layout, the train runs by, the tracks are good enough that they don't derail, they're happy. And they just simply did not include presentation as
3: one of the goals they were working toward. And presentation beyond the scenic cohesiveness would be signage, printed handouts, interpretive displays, spokespeople, that kind of thing?
4: Well, it depends on what you're doing. I mean, if you're in a home layout situation, I think a lot of that material might be specious. But I think that if you're going to go into a public setting where the general public is invited in, a part of the reason for going is to engender interest in model railroading on the part of those who may not already have it. So I think that we've given ourselves a little bit of a different mission in that particular case. That's an outward focus rather than an inward focus. Yes. And I think all the elements you mentioned most definitely have a place there.
3: Boone, we're going to have to wrap up here. But first of all, I want to congratulate you on being our first guest to use the word specious. And uh, <laughs> I just want to say one of the things I've enjoyed in your articles is the neatness of your work. And by that, I just don't mean your considerable modeling skills, but the way even the unfinished parts of your layout look inviting. One last tip for those displaying those unfinished finished bits.
4: Well, I'm not a fan of white plaster. So the minute I get a chunk of hard shell completed, even if I'm not going to go back and add in the textures and the foliage materials, I'll paint it a generic brown just so I don't have to look mm-hmm. at the white stuff. Okay. And the other one, I think, is to try to keep your piles of junk as neat and tidy as you can and get your skirting up early in the game. Mine is supported with a Velcro strip along the bottom of the fascia and can be easily pulled out of the way to get in there and work. But the rest of the time, it's in place because I don't want to look at that chunk I'm not sure. I sure don't want other people distracted by it.
3: Boone Morrison, thanks so much for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. It's been a treat. My pleasure, Jim. Glad to be here.
0: Well, thanks, guys. That is another treat for our ears, isn't it? Like Jim, I'll be looking forward to the time when Boone again has time to continue his contributions to the Gazette. Well, that's our show this time around. A reminder to visit our website at least every two weeks to catch our latest shows, but more often for the news items and additions to our Flickr Gallery.
1: And as we reminded you before, check us out on Facebook. Well, next time out, I'm going to be speaking with Mark Koenig, curator of the Wilmington, North Carolina Railroad Museum, about an attempt to enter the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest model train.
0: And my guest will be Tag Gorton. He's the editor of the U.K. magazine Garden Rail, and he's going to be telling us about a recent publishing milestone He'll also tell us how digital publishing will, in the future, make expensive overseas magazines much more affordable.
1: As Trevor and I head back to our respective patios, we thank the rest of our crew, our one-man orchestra, Dave Woodhead, our virtual friend, Otto Vondrack, for our web design, and, as always, Chris Abbott for his technical assistance. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us here on The Model Railway Show.